You are now listening to The Jason D'Amico Show. Greetings, folks. Welcome back to The Jason D'Amico Show. So happy to have you with us once again. Uh, close to 130 episodes and counting. Thanks so much for the support. Special thanks to Simplecast, Spotify, iTunes, iHeart, all the great platforms out there that help get the word out and distribute the show. And man, I am so stoked to introduce to you our guest today. Our guest is a Wall Street performance coach, soul counselor, and author of six books on spirituality and culture in modern life. He is credited with coining the phrase spiritual but not religious and was the first theologian author to name and delineate the concept and movement in his 2000 book by the same name. To date, he has garnered more than 1 million TikTok followers and continues to help folks worldwide with his famously recognized badass counseling brand and services. Please welcome to the show, Sven Erlinson. Erlinson, excuse Thank you very much. Nah, that's all right. Trust me. I have five older brothers. I've been called worse, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so great to have you. And I've been spending... The last few hours last night, a little bit this morning, diving into your life, diving into your story. And man, the amount of lifetimes you've lived in whatever the, you know, 50 so years you've been here are just incredible. Very gracious. Thank you. I, I, it sometimes shocks me. You know, do you ever do that, Jason? I don't know how old you are, but do you ever do that in your life where you look back on, let's say, like when you were 18, all right, you're just coming out of high school and you look back and you say, how many lifetimes have I lived? since I was 18, yeah. you know, cause I, I literally just last night I was laying in bed with my girlfriend, we we're talking and I was thinking about like 18 and I was remembering, okay, this time of year I was in wrestling season and so forth. And I'm like, that was like one, two, three, that was like seven lifetimes ago. I feel like I've lived like seven or, or five or six blocks of lifetimes since then. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Just, and it's not just that it's so long ago, but there are like phases there's like chapters or whatever, you know, sort of cliche we want to use. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. That chapter is done. And so we live several lifetimes within a lifetime. I, have you had this similar experience? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, so I'm, I turned 28 in January and things the last 10 years, first of all, just snapped by. <laughs> and not only that, I think, you know, especially the last two years with, what's happened and all the the changes in the world and kind of what we're dealing with post pandemic. It feels like it's been 10 years compacted into that two years. And then the 10 years on top of that. So, so for me, um, it almost feels like 20 within <laughs> 10 you're years. You're an old man, Jason. You don't look the part, but you're, you're an old man. Inside. They, they call like... they call me the old soul for some reason. Uh, you know, I, I, I keep, I keep getting thrown and, and, and coined that term. And I'm, I'm not sure why that is. And I've, I've, when I was younger, I always wanted to be older. Now, as I get older, I just want to be younger. So there's ah. some, some, let's, you know, we'll get, we'll get into that dissonance there at some point. Fair enough. Into your Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I don't even know where to start except for your beginning stages. I think it's the the best place to start because if we talk about the Air Force, if we talk about all the the countless degrees you've got, and you'll probably get some more, obtain some more in your lifetime, I'm sure. Um, what what a unique story! Just so glad to cover it. How? Let's just start with your beginning stages and, and how you got into this. If there was a pull for spirituality, I know your parents have a background 
and divinity and the Lutheran church. So yep. just real, I'll let you, I'll let you do more of the explaining. I have read about it, but sure. we'll hear from the source. Yeah, no, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, my dad was a pastor and my mom uh, raised us six kids. One of my brothers was a girl, but she was basically a guy by her own reckoning. So that's why I say it. just for clarity, I have five older brothers. Um, but grew up in the church and, and loved it, quite frankly. And, and that was our social hub and so on and so forth. And But more than that, I grew up with a father who was just a very good, decent man. And I always grew up wanting a great man for a father. Yeah. And there was that disappointment, but I love my dad. I was hugged every day of my life, given a kiss by my dad, told I was loved. And my, but my mom was perhaps in some ways my greatest influence. And she was a deep thinker. And she and I bonded over that, over deep questions from a very young age. And she was uh, very spiritual, even though they were both religious. But I remember coming home from Sunday school one Sunday and mom's in the kitchen prepping the big noon Sunday meal. And we're talking, talking, talking. And I tell her something I had learned in Sunday school that day. And she says to me, yeah, well, Sven, don't believe everything you hear in church. This is a fucking pastor's wife saying this. And so there's a, there was already this, the seeds of, you know, that sort of cracking open uh, that you can have spirituality without religion and, but also just thinking for yourself. Yeah. And so I very much grew up in that and loved my parents, but I also loved religion and, and went to the Air Force Academy and so forth. And then I was about halfway through there and I realized, you know, I love this and I love the military, but I don't want to be a fighter pilot. The immense respect for the, the classmates of mine who did, and many of them are generals now, admirals, shit like that. And, uh, but for me, it's like the calling was something different. And, and what it was really about was when I was 19 is when my deliberate spiritual journey began, where I began to ask the questions of myself, who the fuck am I really? Do I have the courage to be who the fuck I really am? What do I feel called to do with my life? What, and, and not just, you know, the answers of the universe sort of thing, but the answers of who am I? Yeah. And to go into that, and that requires uh, both simultaneously stepping up to the buffet of life and tasting and sampling all the different experiences, but simultaneously having the courage to quit, mm. to be able to say, and as a guy who grew up as an athlete, I was a division one athlete, right? Competitive powerlifter, all this shit, having the courage to say, no, I don't want that. To go one step into something and say, no, I don't want it. I didn't have parents who said, well, if you start something, you better finish it. They just, <laughs> they had already had five kids. By the time I came around, they're like, hey, I don't give a shit. They didn't come <laughs> to all my practices. They didn't come to all my games. It was in, in the first uh, 10 years of my playing sports. So I got high school. I can count on half of one hand, the number of sporting events my parents went to. So it wasn't that. They always went when I was in theater and when I was at an orchestra concert and stuff. But so I, you're really on your own to find it for yourself. And there was a freedom to quit. Don't quit. We don't give a shit. We love you. You know, do what you want. Right. But there's so much pressure to not quit, which means the kid, the young person or the adult in midlife or whatever, doesn't have the freedom to step up to the buffet and just see what tastes good. And, and without the freedom to say no to that, which is not you, it becomes very difficult to find, to, to have the liberty to find that, which is me. And, and so I always had that. And so there's always this uh, communion from 19 years old communion with my own spirit, beginning to talk and find the things that were obstructing it. And it was just the rest of my life was just me following whatever my sort of soul was calling me to do next. And me having the courage to walk away from things. And I had lost a couple of marriages. And in the long run, it ends up being a blessing. What was that sent to? How was that sent to grow me? And uh, different career paths. I thought all I ever wanted in life was to speak, write, and counsel. I didn't know what the career was. I, I just knew the three things I loved to do the most. And I thought, well, I can do those in ministry. So I became a Lutheran pastor. 
but I was always a square peg in a round hole in large part because of my fucking mouth, but I was also writing these books that were uh, very controversial. And I was taking socio-political stands back in the nineties, you know, standing up for gay rights as a straight guy back in the nineties. It's a different world from what it is now. So just all of these things, plus my generally annoying personality, I didn't fit. And it was hard as hell for me to let go of what I thought my path was, but I was following my own inner spirit and so on and so forth. So it was always about who am I again, who am I? And, and do I have the courage to say no to that, which is not me and to go for as long as it lasts in the direction of that, which is me, you have to understand any success I have now on TikTok, you know, a million and a half followers and 11 million likes and, and as well as Instagram and YouTube and all that shit is that any success I have now could not have been foreseen. TikTok didn't exist five years ago. Social media didn't exist 12, 15 years ago. Personal computing didn't fucking exist back in the 90s when I was writing my first book. So it's just like, well, I mean, it did, but most people didn't have it, whatever. The internet barely exists. So it's just like the notion that you can see at 22 or even 28 or whatever, how you're going to unfold, how the, what, type of oak that acorn is going to grow into is ludicrous, but it requires the courage to become and to sever limbs when they no longer serve you, so to speak. So it was, it it started from that, the the trust, my mom and the deep questions and and the deep questions of oneself and having the courage and the the room to say yes to that, which breathes life into you and no to that, which does not. Does that make any sense? Oh, it's, it's great. And I've read somewhere and I'll have you clarify your parents and you spent a lot of time at home in, in high school, eating dinner table talks and was curious to, to kind of dive into some of those conversations because it it sounds like you guys got into some deep, (laughs) deep waters, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of the siblings were out of the house at that point. Are you the youngest then? Yes. You are the youngest. Okay. Yes. So by the time I get to junior high, there's only one brother left at home, John. And John was extremely good looking and charming. And the ladies loved him. Plus, he was involved in the theater in high school and ran the sound light booth. And so John was gone most of the time. So it was basically mom, dad, and me, where it used to be eight people around the table. It's now three. And uh, mom had begun, gone back into the workforce. And she was a professional educator, but also a crisis counselor, a trauma counselor. And so... She had raised me, forgive me, but in the era, this is what we would call it back then. She raised me as a girl. I can run a sewing machine. I would iron all my dad's hankies. I would do all my own laundry. My old sports pants, like my football pants, they'd have blood stains and grass stains. And she's like, so by now, by the time I'm in 13, 14, my mom's 53. She's got arthritis. And she's like, basically under her breath, she's probably thinking, I'm not scrubbing those fucking things. So she put me down and taught, taught me how to soak my own pants. We had an old scrub board. I had to scrub. I was raised large as a girl. Well, we get to 13, man, and uh, older siblings are gone. And uh, it's around the dinner table. And mom had taught me everything else in life. So now she starts teaching me, I have no idea why, counseling. And yeah. so she's, and so she would, she was teaching me the, rudim, the rudimentary stuff, active listening, passive listening, summation, finding the deeper point. So she'd say, okay, Sven, based on what your father just said, uh, what was his overarching theme? Okay, that's good. What was he saying without actually saying it? In other words, what was the message underneath the message or behind the message? Okay, what would be an active listening technique? What would be a passive listening? It's just like, okay, and it was fun. And they were challenging me and mom. And so for me, 
this is why to this day, you know, my girlfriend, she's really active and she likes to do these sorts of things and those sorts of things. And I'm the most sedentary motherfucker there is. It's just like, I just want to sit and have deep conversation. That's all I want to do ever. That's like my favorite fucking thing because I grew up on that. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was. And, and we talked about everything. And at the time, mom was uh, serving, uh, running a uh, uh, suicide prevention hotline, suicide crisis hotline. And so we'd be talking about this. And of course, she'd leave names out. Not that ever, anybody ever gives names on crisis hotlines. Sure. She'd leave names out and we'd go into that stuff. Okay, so Sven, I ran into this situation. What would be the question you would ask? If you got presented with this opening paragraph, somebody's uh, 16-year-old is in trouble, blah, blah, blah. What would be the first question you would ask? And what's this person really saying? And what's missing? And so on and so forth. So she's teaching me all this. It's like it's like growing up being the fucking daughter of Bill Gates. It's just like, you think you might know a little something about computers, you know, and right. you become saturated. But the cool thing about my parents, it was, I never felt like anything ever was rammed down my throat. Not their religion, not the shit mom was teaching me. It was just playing. It was just fun. It was, you know, and it was our conversations. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's what happened back then. That is so, that is so, uh, cool. And, and just to, to have the, the serendipitous nature of that, right. It was almost like a precursor. Uh, I'm sure I don't want to speak for you, but I don't think you'd be where you were today if it wasn't for some of those conversations. Indisputable, indisputable. Yeah. And I like your word choice serendipitous and that there was uh, with my parents, so much of parenting nowadays, and there was some of this present even in my parenting of my own children, uh, but so much of parenting is, well, I got to teach my kid this and I got to teach my kid that, or I need to guide them or whatever. Yes, my mom taught me that shit, but it was just because that was dinner conversation. But there was, le and she taught me those things, such as even the, the basic stuff of sewing and doing your own laundry and, and separating whites from colors and so forth. She did that not because she was trying to teach me something per se, but because she needed help. She, she was running a home of eight kids. We all had to darn our own socks. We didn't have money to throw away socks. So we had to learn how to darn our own socks and everybody had chores and so forth. So there was never this sense of, I never felt, there was never a sense of control. And here I'm going to pop, pop, pop you need to learn pop, pop, pop. or if I'm working outside with dad, come on, I need help uh, uh, transplanting this tree. All right, you do the digging. I'm going to come back because I got a load of dirt over here, blah, blah, blah. It was never, I believe, or very, by the time I got around, they had been teaching perhaps the older siblings, but with the time I got around, it's just like, there's work to do. We've got this land, we've got the house, we've got everything. There's just work to do. And it's just putting you to work in those conversations. It was, to your words, serendipitous. It was never, gee, we need to teach our kid this. And for them, and that was rooted in their faith. Okay, so their pastor and my mom's faith as well. And it was very much um, that the Lord provides, that God provides. Now, whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, the fundamental basic is that you can trust in the universe and that allowing room for, to your word, serendipity and just letting it sort of go where it goes, the organic nature of becoming. And, and to also tap into what your parent, you had a really interesting quote or it was somewhere in your bio. No, I think it was in a video. Encourage kids to do what they love, not what they're good at. And yeah. I, I just think that's, it has to do with trust. It has to, and, and I've, as a, as a young man, what, you know, get you getting into later twenties. Now I I'm feeling a lot of that deterioration within myself of why am I doing this? 
is, is this is this for an ego reason is this for what whose voice is whose voice is driving the the engine and, and you know kicking the throttle in here is it from is it from bullying in, in the past is it from family members is it from myself 10 years ago so a lot i think that's just fantastic that they instilled and, that in you and so let me ask you jason that really so let's let's just do mini case study right here let me ask you as you're doing that questioning of what's really driving the equation of my life in these micro things, in the medium things, and in the macro things of your life, what percentage, if you're to just spitball it, knowing you could change your mind tomorrow, what percentage of the stuff, of the factors that are driving the equations of your life, what percentage is um, from an external power source that got put into you at some point and what percentage of it is something that you have chosen or do choose for your life, that it comes from you rather than from an external power source. In other words, what percentage of your life is driven by external power sources? That's a great question. And it's the first thing that comes to mind is maybe I'm in a season of, of paradoxically dissecting mm -hmm. because it's funny you'll go down paths to gain knowledge because people will say to gain knowledge and then you'll get those internal influences or those external influences coming in. And then in intrinsically you're able to siphon through filter through and, and take what you want. But then at the same time, those moments of inspiration on a macro scale, the vision quest standpoint, that's always been there from the beginning. That call towards, I, I've always had a, an inclination to the supernatural. I've always, I, I came out of the womb musically inclined, uh, dramatically, you know, the, the drama, the arts, all that. So there's a lot of things. And then, so it's, it's kind of hard to, to answer that question specifically because I might be in a season right now of really tuning into and, and, and figuring out the difference. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, Okay. Absolutely. No, answer. no, that's a great answer. And that actually leads to one of the things, and I'll just be very brief here because I know you have other questions, but one of the things um, I uh, recommend to people is that they go through and they just create a piece of paper and write down this uh, line down the center and at the top put and mom and dad and at, at the top of the other side put self yeah. and just list here every single value every single value that got conveyed either explicitly or implicitly by mom and dad. And it can be something as simple as, well, I'll always save money for a rainy day, or it can be something as be nice to old people or something as big as never live in Minnesota because the people are dumb. I'm from Minnesota. And, and so whatever it might be, but then you come over here and you look at that value from mom and dad and you say, well, two questions. One, do I subscribe to that value? That's the first question, yes or no. And then the second question, this is the more important part. What percentage? Mm. So it, it might be always save for a rainy day. And, and that may have been hammered into me, but my response might be, yeah, okay, that's good. But I really only subscribe to that 30%. 70%, I believe in living life right now because, gee, I had an uncle and a girlfriend who both died or whatever and, you know, they had money in the bank or they whatever. And I realized, shit, they never really lived because they were always saving for a rainy day. Yeah. Whatever you're thinking might be, but it's breaking down. It's taking what you were given from the external power sources, 
and then reflecting on it for myself, but then assessing the percentage. And the real gold, like I said, is in the percentage because then it's not just binary, either or, but it's, well, okay, there is something there. Or no, I don't subscribe to it at all. But that's forcing me to define who I am based on the external power sources as a starting point. And there may be pieces that I never got information or wisdom on, like I was never taught, uh, gee, um, owning a home versus um, owning a home and renting it out, but living in a different place or whatever. I was never taught anything. So I've got to break that down for myself, but a great starting point. And where the real differentiation happens between who I am and what was pressed into the wet cement of my soul to be as a child, we're all wet cement. And whatever gets pressed in there hardens, it calcifies, it becomes the virus infecting the operating system of who you are. And what you fundamentally have to do is take out those messages, look at them and decide, is that me or is that simply what I was given? So that's fantastic. So fantastic. Were, were there any influences specifically for you besides your parents and um, immediate family that really threw gasoline on the fire for you, athletes, uh, artists back in the day? Yeah, for sure. For sure. My high school wrestling coach was to this day, one of the single wisest men I've ever known. And he really took the idea of, uh, he taught us focus and the power of focus. And when I was an NCAA strength coach, um, I used to teach my athletes, there's no success in any venture in life without the capacity to focus our mind. I've lived in San Francisco and DC and LA. And I had a lot of friends in LA who were actors, directors, producers, and so forth. And I, because I was working three jobs while writing one of my books, one of my jobs long time ago was working at Starbucks and I was right in Studio City. So a lot of my actors and I had the morning shift. So a lot of my people were people going to set because, you know, for instance, West Wing, I had several members of West Wing. Uh, who came into my fucking thing. And I give him shit. And I grew up with brothers. So I'm giving him shit. We'd talk and whatever. Plus I'm asking him questions because I ask questions and shit like that. And for all the friends I had who were in the industry, I had friends who were on big time shows or producers or directors or whatever. And one of the things I discovered is if you lack the ability to focus, you ain't never going to be a fucking actor, especially on a talk heavy show like a soap opera where so many people get their in. You're not going to do fucking theater if you can't fucking focus. Right. So this notion of focus. So my high school wrestling coach really, you can't even fucking wait tables. And I waited tables through college and, and graduate school. I waited tables off and on for like 12 fucking years. And I loved it. You can't wait tables. If you got five tables working, you oh. know, that guy over there has a well done steak. And this one over here on this or on the same table just has a salad. You got to time those right. While over there, you realize you still got to get a fork down because, you know, this woman's dessert is coming, blah, blah, blah. You want to make fucking money in life. You got to be able to fucking focus. All right. Um, So my high school wrestling coach really taught us mental toughness and focus. But there was a guy, I was uh, in my first year of seminary and he was a pastor at a local church and big guy, straight, straight, straight out of fucking uh, ZZ Top. I mean, you would think (laughs) that's, that's the mental image. But the most powerfully, physically powerful guy, big t- stomach, but hands like tree trunks, he'd crush your fucking hand. The only other more powerful grip I've encountered in my life was my father who grew up on a farm. But anyway, what he taught me, not deliberately, but because of who he was. I mean, after Christmas Eve service, we go back to his house, the parsonage, and I'm just the intern. And we go to the parsonage where the pastor lives. And he and his wife pour up shots and we're doing fucking shots, having just walked across the yard uh, there in, in uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco. But what I learned with him, and this really changed everything. I had grown up with World War II generation parents, and they were just good people. And there wasn't 
there wasn't booze in the home or there wasn't swearing or there wasn't loudness. We were Swedes, right? Quiet people. But this guy taught me the, the gelling, the merging of the sacred and the profane, the merging of the most basic human elements and, and while simultaneously the spiritual, the supernatural and so forth. And it was just, and, and people loved him and the guy just had love, but we've, He'd swear up a storm, and every time he went up in Napa, he and his wife, any winery that they went to, they always bought one bottle to drink and one bottle to save. And they, they you know, they probably smoked weed. I don't fucking know. But the bottom line is, is that it really broke open this notion that it's possible to serve humanity, be an instrument of uh, God or love in the world or whatever, while simultaneously just being a real fucking human being, which is precisely. What my work right now as a therapist, sure, and writing books, but especially on TikTok. It's, it's that fusion and people like, I get people fucking banging my fucking head with a bat every time saying, do you really need to swear so much? Holy Christ, you said five fucks in one sentence. Is that really necessary and all this shit? And then you get people who are like jumping on. It's like, hey, Sven's the first motherfucker who actually talks straight, who actually makes therapy or spirituality or dating fucking in normal people's languages. And it started back there. That fucker gave me permission. And so uh, yeah, That's there were great. some really extraordinarily influential non-parental people in my life. That was um, Reverend Roger Bauer. Oh, yeah. Shit, you pulled that one. You've done uh, your yeah, research, yeah, no, I've, got, I've got it right in front of me. Uh, uh, German. Yeah, German. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had been a Division One football player at Purdue and so forth. Yeah, Roger was badass. badass. Yeah, he, say, he sounds like it. And that's so that's so amazing that he gave you – permission to because that's always been that's always been i'll just be transparent with you i mean I, i've grown up in the church i i'm all into the supernatural okay big big facet of my life huge fa minute all of it yeah and that's been one one thing that's weighed on my soul a lot uh growing up is you know coming from that background especially in the south yeah, you know for sure for sure and um the things that I've dealt with, I mean, just the, and, it, and it's the energy, it's the energy that'll build up in a room when people, Oh, this is, you know, Jason Amico. Yeah. He's an actor and he plays bars with his band and da, 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 da. And it's like, I'd always run into situations where I'd want to play on the worship team or, and, and they think I would, I was stuck up or they think I'd have, you know, and, and then I, it, it really, it became one of those what's wrong with me situations and mm. it, it's turned into over the years i've had to you know do the work shed it off and and go you know what uh that ain't god you know that's you. i, I don't i don't you. need to worry about that so i i love that he you know because i i love asking questions like that to see who really instilled values in people yeah. 20 years 30 years prior yes because again, without him, we may, we may not have you, you know? So it's, it's yeah, such a, for sure. what a great story. What a great oh, story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so with seminary and, and, and getting into that, when, how, how did that click for you? When did, when did it finally click? Like, okay, you know what? I'm bombastic. I've got this personality. I'm going to jump into this. I feel a welling in my soul that I need to go after this. How did that come about? To be a pastor, you mean? Yeah. To, to, yeah. to take that plunge because it yeah, really, you know, it, it feels like it's something out of left field in a way, but at the it same was. time, you grew up in it. Right, right. No, no. And none of my siblings did. And the fact that we all had mixed feelings about the church ended up becoming my first book, Spiritual But Not Religious, in the right. 90s. 
that we loved it and we hated it. And I'm like, this is an indicator of something. This is a canary in the coal mine. But back to your question of when did it hit me? When I left the Air Force Academy at 19 years old, and uh, I knew, I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew it wasn't that. And I love the military, mad respect. I have old friends who have died in war and so on and so forth. Um, so it wasn't about military or even the Air Force or even being a pilot. I respect all of those things immensely, but it just wasn't for me. That's all. I mean, it's like when you meet a wonderful woman, it's like, oh my God, she's beautiful and she's smart and she's this and that, but it just, I don't feel the click. Yeah. And she can still be great. I just don't feel the click. That's all. Nothing against her. Just don't feel it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it was about, that was 19 and I began my spiritual journey. And then it was when I was 22 and I had been kicking around all sorts of different things. And I met a woman. Uh, I met Julie. She had become my first wife. And it was in a conversation with her. And we realized that we really shared a love for God and, and for people and for church. And we just loved it. And, uh, and it was then that it clicked. And I knew I wanted to uh, finish my degree, but do it in world religions instead of mathematics, which I'd been majoring in all the way along because I was good at it. Um, and, um, and that I wanted to go to seminary. And so uh, that sort of all just took off. I had actually already mostly gotten my degree in world religions, but I just had, I'd done both at the same time. Anyway, that was with the certainty. It's just, it was a woman and it clicked and that became the calling of my life for the next 15, 20 years, even as it morphed into other things, including the wall street uh, coach and shit like that, which just fell out of the sky. But it was in that moment at 22, it's like, okay. And this will also satisfy my wanting to speak and write and counsel. And, and you got kicked out three times <laughs> out of, uh, out of, uh, or, or nation. Uh, uh yes. I'm sorry. If, if, yeah. Even, I don't even know what I'm reading. Evangelical yeah. Lutheran church in America, the ELCA. Yes. Uh, we got to get into that real quick. I got, I mean, just, sure. you know, a quick, sure. quick lowdown on yep. that. Cause yep. I, bottom I, line I, is, I love it. Bottom line is I graduated from seminary and as you're going through seminary, they have an oversight committee that basically tracks your progress and you have to interview with them. And three different times that oversight committee said, no, fuck you. You're out of here. <laughs> and, and we don't like your theology or we don't like your personality. Or when my book came out, we don't like your fucking book. What cuckoo ass shit is this? And, uh, but I persisted at times I took the blows, whatever. But then on top of that, where it's not specific in that description you, that I wrote or that you've read or whatever, is that I also got kicked out of three individual parishes. So I got kicked out by the large organization three different times. And um, I was serving a church in, uh, or I was being considered for the pastor job in San Francisco for pastor of a Lutheran church. And once they found out my position on gay rights, ironically enough, it was this uber conservative church. They said, you know, oh, you're pro-gay. We don't want you. We really want you, but because that one thing, we're not going to do it. Then right. another time they brought me back again to interview for that position. And they said, we want you. And they did all but hired me. And they said, nope, no good. And then a third time I was serving a church um, in Ohio. And uh, again, it came to the gay rights issue. But now we're in the late 2000s. And I was killing it. And I was running up their fucking membership. It was growing and all this shit. And uh, the senior pastor was a hardcore conservative. But he, was, he had been an athlete. So we could at least talk. We could see eye to eye. And we just didn't on that one thing. And they got people behind them. We don't like spend stance on gay rights. And so I got thrown out of that one too. So technically I've been thrown out of, out of ministry six different times, three oh, okay. by the organization and three by individual fucking churches. So, you know, but it was a blessing. It was a blessing because I never could have foreseen unless those doors had been closed. These doors would have never, I would have never gone in the direction of the doors that are happening now. Now you also, 
I also read somewhere about youth ministry. You started as a youth pastor. Is that correct? When I was midway through seminary, I also had a, uh, my wife and I had separated at that time. I was still going to seminary and I was serving as a youth pastor of a church in suburban Minneapolis. Yes. That must've been some experience. I, I mean, to be a kid in one of your, you know, uh, under your leadership. Can I tell you, can I tell you a little story real quick? Please, real oh, quick please, yeah. That's why I brought it up. I, I, I <laughs> was hoping you my would. old man, my dad, who was world War II generation. So he's a pastor of a suburban church in Minneapolis when I'm growing up and I'm like six, seven, eight, ten, And I remember hearing the story and it'll get told every year that my dad, when the confirmation class, so this is like 15 year olds, 14, 15 year olds or 13, 14 would come into their first day of confirmation and it was a big church. And so there were different classes, but the class that he taught his group, let's say it's 30 kids, they come in and there's pastor first day of confirmation class. They walk in on Wednesday night and there's pastor and they look at him and he's standing in front of him. They look, he's standing on a Bible. <laughs> now my dad's world war II generation grew up on a farm during world war II and the depression teaming up horses and shit before they even had tractors. So he's hardcore old school Swede. But he's just, and the lesson was the Bible isn't God. And until you get that through your head, he would say, until you get that through your head, you don't have faith. You have a relationship with a book that is not the same. Right. And so, I mean, that when you get that story at six or eight, that shapes everything. Oh, you've yeah. Got parents, you've got parents who are aggressive, forward thinking people. So, my favorite thing was we used to play this game. We take, when I was a youth pastor, we used to play this game, the senior pastor and I, and we'd take kids on retreats and so forth. And it was this game. It was like, it was basically like fucking Jeopardy or some knowledge show or whatever. And one of my favorite questions was, was always along the lines of um, uh, name this Bible verse or true or false. Is this a Bible verse or is it not? And I would say any man who has had his testicles crushed or his penis severed from his body shall not be allowed in the gathering of the Lord. And they'd hit their buzzers and say, no way, no fucking way. And I'd say Deuteronomy 23, one. And if you're reading a new interpretation, they're watering that shit down. Go back to fucking King James shit. You get your dick knocked off or, you know, your fucking whatever, your testicles crushed. You can't come around God. And they just thought that was the funniest fucking thing. And now it may seem as a totally random thing, but it humanizes the Bible. And it also forced them to begin to think and take shit with a grain of salt. And it's like, what are we supposed to do? Put at the entrance of the church door, some woman who's feeling everybody's testicles. <laughs> okay, you can come in, right? It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. So it's learning to Ooh. take faith seriously, but also to be able to laugh that, okay, this was a cultural thing, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I had some fucking fun in my pastoring years and youth pastoring years. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. <laughs> I don't think I've laughed that hard since the, 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 the beginning of the new year. That that's oh, worth its weight in gold. Um, not not to digress from that. That's no, that's, go ahead. that's fantastic. Wor working in an emergency wing uh, mm -hmm. as a, I, I think it said chaplain or yep. minister. Correct. Your mother did that right for a little bit or similar. Um, she had done uh, crisis counseling, but she crisis had not counseling. been a hospital chaplain. Yeah. Okay. And I was so, an emergency room chaplain for, for a period. Yeah. I'd love to touch on that for, for a couple of minutes and, and mm -hmm. your experiences with that. And um, obviously you talk about patterns. I was going to bring up patterns later, but in this case, I think at this point, as we start getting closer to, to the badass counseling era in your life, which you are currently in mm -hmm. um, patterns are, being a math guy yourself, I, I love statistics. I went to school for business. Um, oh, no I, I had a statistics course and fell in love with it 
because of the patterns and pattern recognition and really, you know, discovering them within yourself in the world and how the numbers really just, they just don't lie. So I'd love to see correlations perhaps with if you were around death often in those situations or, or, or folks that were on the verge of it and came back, um, kind of a loaded question, but I'm sure there's something you can kind of pick off there with the bone. Absolutely. My very first day, it was at a level one trauma center. So a level one trauma center can take anything at any time. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Burn victim shootings, et cetera. And my very first day, the very first room I walked into was the room of someone who had had an accident on the uh, on the job site where they had gotten sucked into a wood chipper. My very first patient, my very first day, and I'm 26 fucking years old. Also on that day, um, a cop was shot in that city. And so that was one of the rooms I walked into or was on a peripheral because the person got shot and they were in no position for a chaplain. But sometimes staff and family will request the chaplain be present. And so then this set the tone for you're an emergency room chaplain. And the pattern that developed, honestly, if I'm really the real pattern that developed in terms of my own personal work is the immense awareness of one's inadequacy. The fuck is a 26-year-old going to say to someone who just got sucked into a wood chip? What the fuck am I going to say to the family of a cop that got shot or to the cop herself or himself? And and so beginning to see that in me. And then what do you do when you feel inadequate in life? And remember, this is the ongoing conversation between uh, myself and myself. And that's what all of my work is about now. It's like communicating with yourself and being honest. And we used to have to write a thing called verbatims. After, so after that situation where I'm, where I'm taking a family down to the morgue, let's say, because their loved one had just gone down there and I'm taking them down there and I'm holding the door and I'm staying with them. There's a whole fucking dialogue going on inside of my head. So when we wrote these verbatims, our uh, instructor, who was the head chaplain at the time, she wanted us to not only write down what was happening, but what's going on inside of you. And mine were like, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me. What am I doing here? God damn it. I feel so fucking inadequate. I don't even know what to say to these people. They're so nice and they're so hurting. I don't know what to fucking say. And I didn't know the dead person. Fuck. You know, and that's <laughs> and she, my, my chaplain supervisor. She saved that one. She said, Sven, can I use this for, for future class? I'm like, why would you want to save it? It's just like one big fuck. And she's like, that is so perfect because that's real shit. Yeah. And uh, so for yeah. me, one of the patterns uh, was the feelings of my own inaccuracy and what's going on inside of me and tuning into those questions. However, to your point, yes, you become aware of also the patterns in people of what's driving people, what's driving people's pain. And it's not, for instance, in the case of death, it's not always the death itself. It's the feelings that go along with it when they're playing, hey, Chaplain, can I talk to you for a minute? And it's the son of the dad. And it's not that he's uh, sad about dad's death per se, or not only that. What he's sad about is, that my dad never fucking made me feel adequate. My, or my mom, she never accepted me as her daughter. And now she's passing away. And I'm realizing that I never got my needs met. And I've spent my whole fucking life contorting, doing every, becoming a gymnast, so to speak, contorting and bending, doing anything to try to get her approval. And now she's passing away and I never got that approval. And I realize I just wasted 40 years of my fucking life trying to win the approval of a dying woman. Who am I now? What, what do I do now? Who am I if I'm not trying to win her approval? And I'm like, fuck me. These are the questions of life. 
And then that, plus my work in the parish and in ministry, plus my just thinking about religion in general, which was sort of when my first book came out, all of these, these things began to realize. And mom had been asking these questions to me, these deep questions my whole life. But when you live it, knowing it and living it are two different things. And right. when you're living it, uh, when you're living it, then you begin to feel it. And then you dig deeper. What's really driving people? What's really driving people? What's really driving people? And so I think, and I could be you know, over overwriting the scene here, but I think what uh, people sort of connect with in my videos or in my counseling or in my books is that it's digging down to that deeper shit. One of the great um, psychologists, and I know nothing about psychology, but one of the great American, perhaps the great American psychologist taught at Harvard back in the 20s and 30s, a man by the name of William James. And he had many great quotes. And one of them I use as an epigraph in one of my earlier books. And he simply says this, and I want you to think about this in terms of your career professions, because it applies. And he simply says, that which is most personal is most universal. So think about that in terms of standing in front of a great painting. Think about that in terms of the pathos of a great play where someone is speaking about their own anguish or their own loss of a child. It's so personal, yet it resonates like a string inside a fucking piano because it's like, Jesus, I've experienced that. You're speaking to the very questions that I wrestle with. Finally, someone is giving words. Do you know how many clients I have say to me, Sven, oh, listening to Metallica got me through or, or Tool got me through the hardest parts of my life or Eminem or 50 Cent or whatever got me through those hardest times because it gave words to my experience. That which is most personal is most universal. So the greatest artists are the ones that are tapping in from their deepest source. And by going to that which is most personal, they, they speak to the universality of human experience in all of us. And I think that's sort of what I've uh, been challenged in my own life to find. And what is it that's really fucking going on here? So I don't know if that helps. Oh, uh, so eloquently put. And I think it's a great segue to get into your, your authorship and your writing. And I'd love to, it's kind of a twofold question. What is your writing process? And then I'll, I'll kind of give... <laughs> For those of for those who don't know your story already, um, you chose to be homeless for a few years as yeah. you were writing, so yeah. that could be part of your process. Uh, but I'll I'll let you uh, I'll let you speak for yourself on that. No, sure. That uh, that was my second to last book. That was the book I Steal Wives. I was uh, living on the streets of Oakland and Berkeley, California, and California, and. Uh, working among the homeless and literally living among them. I had given up all of my life possessions and sleeping on concrete every night for two and a half years while simultaneously uh, going to Starbucks, going to the library, whatever, and writing uh, every single day and so forth. Uh, but the actual writing process, which I, I think, um, you know, having, I'm a nonfiction writer. I don't know if I'd call it art, uh, but what you do is art and acting and music and so forth, which to me is the highest form of art, the, the capacity to create music and convey music compellingly uh, for me personally, because uh, I can't do it. <laughs> um, my process ultimately was accidental, and it, but it's always been, and now it especially is, I don't start writing a book. I, I, unless I know it will fully grab my attention and hold my attention for a long time. And it's where I can't get it out of me. I only write because I have something I need to say. And that's what sustained me. When I wrote Spiritual But Not Religious, even though it was a seminal work at least 10 years ahead of its time, I wrote it too soon and all that. But when I wrote that, I wrote it because I had something to say and nobody fucking read it or very few people and very few people read my next two, three, four or five. Even when my very last book came out in 2018, 
there were people reading it, but it wasn't a lot. And by that time, I had already gotten representation. I'm represented by you know top literary agency in the country, Trident Media Group in New York City. Yeah. And but even then, they couldn't sell I Steal Wives to publishers. They didn't want to touch it. Hot potato. You're it's right too, on too it. controversial. Yeah. Infidelity and specifically female infidelity because I had experiences with that. And long story. Anyway, the point is, my process is. I just write when I need to speak. Well, if no one's or when if no one's reading your books, why the fuck are you writing? Why fucking write? I mean, sure, I dreamed of, oh, I want to be a New York Times bestselling author or blah, blah, blah. But if no one's reading it, most people or even me at times, I gave up. But it's just like, then I had something more I wanted to say. Then I had something more I wanted to say, even though no one is reading my fucking books. I even, uh, well, that's a whole separate story. But the bottom line is, <laughs> I did it because it felt right to me. Right. And then what happens? A year ago, my girlfriend said, and I had already put out them videos on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook in the past. They had never really gone anywhere, but I did them because it was fun. It's fun mm-hmm. to create. Mm-hmm. And it's my shit, which is why I never got into acting. I don't want to say somebody else's words. I prefer to create my own words and deliver my own way. Okay. Anyway, a year ago, my girlfriend says, hey, dumbass, you need to get on this TikTok thing. I, I'm like, I don't dance. I'm not getting on TikTok. I had no <laughs> idea what TikTok was. She says, hey, pull your head out of your ass. And just you just shave it down to a minute. You can do 15. I've seen you do five. I've seen you do 30 minutes. Just do it in one minute. I said, so just so I've got this straight. You want me to say something substantive on a complex topic in 59 seconds with no notes day after day. She says, yeah, hey. exactly. <laughs> and, and she's like, don't claim to be some hot shot unless you can meet the challenge. So I tinker with it, tinker with it. And it just, it basically took off instantly. And oh, that I mean, was incredible. And, but the, and so now- you know, um, uh, my latest book, um, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, it's a bestseller. It literally multiple times in the last year, it has been in of the however many 30 million, whatever, however many million books Amazon says, sells in self-help, it's been inside the top 30. Wow. In overall books, it's wow. been inside the top 400. So that's Stephen King. That's John Grisham, shit like that. But here's the point, Jason. 25, almost 30 years ago, when I first started spiritual, but not religious, and when it didn't sell, and then I start writing Rescuing God from Christianity, and then I write, no one's reading my books, so why keep writing? And the point is, because I was, I was communicating with my own soul, and this is what I needed to do next, never knowing that eventually it all just weaves together. Man. And you can't, and you can't know. And that's why, that's why when parents say, well, that's never going to make money, or you shouldn't do that, you should do this. You're short-circuiting that child's uh, communication with their own soul, and that is directing the path of his life. For those who believe in God, God speaks from in here, not from out here. God, ultimately, even if you get a message from out here, it's mediated through. It's got to resonate. It's got to resonate. If it, does, if it doesn't resonate, it's, it doesn't. It, it's, it, you're it's doing nothing. it for someone else. That's right. Because the consciousness it's, is not picking it up. That's right. And, or, yeah. and when, when people say to their kids, well, you know, you're going to come out of college with this much debt, and then you're not going to have a job, as if having a job and making $60,000 or $100,000 right out of college is the fucking goal of life. As if, well, once you do that, then you're, it's like, no, mine took until I was last year, 53. I had had success, but nowhere near this. Wow. I, you know, I had the counseling practice in New York city and that was great. And, and I made a good living, but as far as feeling like everything finally came together, I was 50 motherfucking three, <sighs> 53. And now, and you know what? It had to be 53 because if I was saying the shit I was saying now, if I was saying that when I was 31, or 26, or even 40, it'd be like, yeah, like if I talk about parenting, people often say, well, yeah, but do you have kids? And I say, yeah, I got a 30-year-old and I got a fucking 27-year-old. And I've failed more times than you probably ever will. 
So it's like the, some careers or some, and if you want to try to talk about the deep shit of life to some degree, if you're talking to an adult, if I'm talking to an adult audience, they've got to know that the person carries some gravitas or the person has gone through some of the fires of life. And so I, and plus I had to let go. Here's the thing, back to your notion of patterns. One of the biggest patterns of my life is has been this challenge since childhood to let go of ego. And I have a big fucking ego. Don't get me wrong, but it's doing it. And this is the question I literally, Jason, this is so funny. I literally just made a TikTok video right before our session. I taped it. It's all queued up to go out on TikTok tonight um, at like nine o'clock Eastern or whatever. And it's on. And one of the questions I ask in it is simply this. So many writers and motivational speakers say, well, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And it's a great question. Cracks open your thinking. I love that question. However, I ask a different question. The question I ask is, what would you do even if you knew there was a high likelihood you would fail? See, now you're not doing it for the success. Now you're not doing it for I'm on stage accepting the Oscar, making my speech in front of the whole world. Now you're doing it just because I love the work itself. I love the grind. And even if I never have the success, I'm building a life of happiness because I love the fucking work. Well, I think actors and singers know something about that. Okay. And so anyway, back to the, just to sort of pull it all together. And that is, I just chose that I was just going to do that, which makes me happy in this lifetime. And I was going to accept the failures and the pitfalls and what eventually happened when I wasn't having the success, even back in the early nineties or the mid nineties, when my counseling career hadn't taken off or gone anywhere, I was counseling some big name people, but it, nothing had ever clicked and it just took off. Um, and I was still writing the books. I had to let go of my ego's aspirations to be famous or to have, you know, I never really aspired to a lot of money, but I did aspire to fame, big ego. And I had to let go of that. And I had to let go of that. And it got burned off. I had to let it go because it was being burned off by God or by the universe or whatever. I wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting it. So then what are you going to do? What are you going to do next if you're not getting your ego needs assuaged? Well, then A, I work on myself to reduce my needs to have my ego stroke. And then I asked myself, well, what would feel good to do next? And I just kept following that. And now, like I said, it all just weaves together. And I've I've got people in Uganda asking me how they can get a copy of my book. I've got people in, in Japan or Bali saying, Hey, I, dude, I watch your TikToks religiously. You changed my life. I had a guy say to me just this morning in one of the comments, I literally was on death's door, an absolute alcoholic, ready to kill myself. And it, your work, in addition to you know one or two other things, just has brought me back from the dead and I'm alive again, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, okay, great. Now we're, now we're cooking with gas, you know? So I don't know if that answers your question. Speechless. Absolutely speechless. It's, it's so good. So I have nothing to add to that. I'm just going to go on to the next topic, <laughs> which I have a lot of things. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and be brief here and, and pick sure. the, what's most, um, relevant to where we are in the conversation i I, i'll throw this at you i thought the john the baptist video was really interesting the i think it was titled i think it was titled badass god shit on youtube and you had the wood floor is getting done in your house or your apartment Uh and you're sitting there drinking a gin and tonic and talking about john the baptist what was my point with john the baptist i've made hundreds of these things the the point was essentially how I think it was like a half hour video talking about how he, after having the the summation of father, son, Holy spirit experience, oh. baptizing Jesus. And yes, then a month yes, and a half yes. later, he's bitching because he doesn't believe. I, I thought, sign, it was, right. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was great. So I wrote it down as a bullet point. We don't have to get into it. I just want, All I had right. to tell you in person. I absolutely love it. I think it's great. 
And that's all of us, right? We get all the evidence in the world that a girl loves us, but we're still, does she really love me? Does she really love me? Or with God, you know, we have all these amazing things happen if you're a person who believes in God, and yet we still don't believe. The next day, we're still distrusting. It's like, and in that case, John the Baptist had literally the only time in the entire Bible where the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are all present in one scene, the only time. Yeah. And then, like you said, a month later, he's in prison. He's saying, oh, he sends his followers, go ask Jesus if he is the Messiah. It's like, really, motherfucker? Really, that wasn't enough? Fuck you. I, I was know? just, and I was just reading in Exodus today uh, earlier, you know, happenstance about the, the well, ac- the Exodus and mm-hmm. the Red Sea and everything. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> It's the same thing. They right. get to the Red Sea and it's like there's been the nine plagues on Egypt and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, oh, well, how what are we going to do now? What, how are you going to do? How are you going to do this, Moses? Blah, blah, blah. And, and the whole thing. It's just it's we like, really that wasn't enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and same thing with Peter and the three denials. I mean, we yes. see this time and time and time and time and time again in Scripture. And for whatever reason, our stupid. I'm not going to say stupid, but the way we're wired, which yes. is br- brilliant, but there mm-hmm. is this carnal stupidity in there where it's like yeah. you just the doubt just every you know you got to yeah. fight the doubt. Well, and and it's it's doubt driven by fear, and this is why fear is referenced 365 times in the Bible. That everything that the fundamental human drive or uh, thing that hamstrings life is fear. It's always fear. And fear is always fear of pain and uh, present pain, future pain, or sometimes looking at past pain. And this is why we're constantly here. Fear not. Don't be afraid. All these messages that, that God, Jesus, uh, any human knows that what you're ultimately always battling is fear and the insidiousness. And so one of the things I tell people is, you know, people have dreams, aspirations for their career, for their life, for their relationships, and they know what they want. People say, well, I don't know what I want. Bullshit. You know what you want, but there's so much fear that we go tick, 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 tick. And we take a watered down version in this direction. We go tick, 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 go in the opposite direction, which was the story of Jonah. He went the exact opposite direction. Okay. But, and so why everything boils down to a choice of fear versus trust. And the fear is that I won't be okay. The trust is that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. And very most people think that there is some eventuality where if it happened, if I never got my mother's approval, it would be a fate worse than death, that I couldn't handle it from the most powerful person in my life. Or if we're stuck in the desert and there's no food, we couldn't handle it. And once you come to the realization that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. Even if I get diagnosed with stage four cancer, I'll be okay. Strange as that sounds. And when you work with people who are dying, you realize, shit, they're more okay than the living. And so, and so this notion of, can you confront what your greatest fear is in this situation? What is the one sentence you most fear hearing? What is the one eventuality you most fear? And then can you ask the question, would I be okay? In other words, would I go to sleep, wake up the next morning, itch my ass, use the bathroom, wipe my butt, go have breakfast, get dressed. In other words, would life go on or would I literally explode? Right. And so that's what keeps us from going after that, which we really want. It's some fear or some person's voice. We fear saying something about us, et cetera. And one of the, one of the other things to, t- to tag on that is you've talked about a lot of people get caught up in the fear of the unknown. Yes. But for you, it's studying the fear of the known. Absolutely. I have never heard that before from anybody. And I've, I've had, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a studier of psychology. I don't have a psychology degree, but I had classes in high school and college sure. with it. Sure. 
Haven't seen that anywhere. And I think yeah. it's breathtaking. I hope you write a book on that at some point. I'm just, yeah. I'm just gonna, I, I think it's fantastic. Fair so just fair wanted enough. to kind of throw that Thanks. to you as well. Appreciate that. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah, that nothing will kill a career, nothing will kill a dream, an aspiration more than the fear of putting it out there, knowing exactly what your brother will say, or knowing exactly what your mother will say, or what society will say, or what your buddies will say. And it's like, that's been so painful in the past when I've been criticized, I'll just keep that inside. And I would rather not go after my dream than endure what I know, you know, in advance what they're going to say. And, and it's so painful because you've been hurt in the past. It's like, it's not worth the risk. I would rather choose a different career. Tick, 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 and go this yeah. direction. Yeah. Um, anxiety and depression. I'll, I'll bring this up real quick because I've, I've had my own experience with it for years. I think a lot of people have, and whether they want to admit it or not, because there, there's definitely a stigma associated with it. And I think we're losing a little bit of it, which is good yes. as, yeah. as time goes on, people are getting more comfortable talking about it and it's becoming more of a, 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 and it is, it really should. I think it's a huge, you know, public service announcement type yep. Yep. Uh, 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 situation. And yeah, your thought, your thoughts on that. Uh, I have written here. It, ha it comes down to destroying one's own inner, distrusting one's own inner voice, yep. Yep. lack of courage, fear of letting go of the thing you most want action versus results. I think this was some video that I, that I watched. Yeah. Uh, the the most, it, yeah, again, I'm not a psychologist. I don't, I'm not, I respect that field. It's not <clears throat> my field. I'm about the soul and how the soul creates uh, depression and anxiety and so forth and what it's a result of that ultimately it's when, when we're not, our, our nature is expansion. Our nature is to fly at full wingspan. All right. And so when I'm not flying at full wingspan, when I'm turning on myself, when I'm keeping my own real voice in, cause I know what they're going to say when we're doing that, eventually what happens is I'm not living my authentic voice for those who are believers in God. I'm not living the voice that God put inside of me. God put a computer chip inside of you, so to speak. And if you're not reading that computer chip, and I talk about my book, for instance, how to, it's very simple, but if you're not doing that, if you're not heeding God's voice, but are instead heeding the voice of people around you, then you're basically saying, fuck you to God. There's something I'm more afraid of. And so, and nothing will turn a person in on themselves. The one definition of depression is that it's anger turned inward. Mm. And that rather than being angry at the people who are hurting me, or rather than pursuing my true self, I turn in on myself. I, I live in fear. I live in scared uh, because I'm not expressing my real self. And so that depression is ultimately because there's been a, a fissure, a break between the communication of the soul to my real self. I'm terrified of putting my real self out there and living an integrated life where my inside is integrated with my outside. Because you've got the voice of your soul, your God voice rising up inside of you for those that believe in God or for some it's just soul. If you're not a God person, that's fine. But then you have all those other voices that have been rammed down your throat since you were a child of who you should be and what is expected of you and the grading in your life, that inner turmoil, that anxiety, that depression inside of you is the, the, the grinding of those two tectonic plates below the surface. And we know from geology that when those plates grind, there's earthquakes up on the surface right? There's anxiety, there's shit going wrong, but it's ultimately your voice in battle trying to rise up from your soul against those voices that have been packed into you from mom, from dad, from society, your whole life. And until 
And as the great poet said, and I always forget his freaking name, uh, but no man is truly free until he can live as though his father is dead. Yeah. Father, father, mother, man, daughter, man, woman, <laughs> until you can slay those voices, until you can extract them from you and live from your authentic source to live your God voice. Until you can do that, you're not living an authentic life. And yes, you are going to feel unrest. And yes, you are going to uh, feel anxiety. Why? Because you're not being who you were put on this earth to be. You're not living your authentic voice. You're living uh, what those other voices want you to be. And that is never an equation for happiness. So whenever comes, people come to me, and it's basically all my clients, and they're depressed and they're, they're anxious, and anxiety, just for the record, is usually someone who's running from that tidal wave of all the feelings and all the experiences, their past, all those memories that have emotional charges attached to them, they're running from them because they're convinced if I stop, they would wash over me and they would overwhelm me and they would destroy me. And so they're running from their past and that creates anxiety. I've got to create more action. I've got to stay busy. I got to do more. I got to do more because I got to keep just one step ahead of that. And so they're forcing life. They're forcing life. They're creating shit. They're not operating from their center. They're not operating from their most authentic voice. They're just trying to create to stay a step ahead of those feelings, but also to appease, to appease those external power sources rather than operating from that centered space inside. Does that make any sense? Hugely, hugely. Yeah. Uh, and, and that kind of triggers a, a flow state conversation. I, I have, I wanted to get your opinion on performance psychology mm -hmm. in the sports world or in the, in the performance mm -hmm. world in general. A lot yes. of performance in life. Yep. Uh, your thoughts on that? I'd love to. I'd love to dive into that for a couple of minutes. Yeah, uh, for sure. And it, it really relates to precisely to your point. It relates to precisely what we're talking about. I've been an NCAA strength coach. I've coached Olympians. I've coached professional athletes. I've counseled the, the same. I've counseled the very top. I, I've been in the office of uh, Academy Award winners and held the. Oscar or the Emmy in my hand or the Grammys in my hand and snap a little selfie in my hand and uh, so forth. So, you know, and top level academics and so on and so forth. And ultimately one of the biggest issues, uh, this isn't necessarily the biggest, but it's certainly in the top three or top five is, um, uh, and it's funny because I was just about to go into this and what I said before, but I wanted to stop, uh, give you room. Um, and that is one of my favorite quotes. And it comes from an author by the name of uh, Esther Hicks. And it's sort of new agey. Uh, her writings. And if you can set the new agey stuff aside and really dive into what I, what I believe she's getting at in this quote, um, she says, nothing you want is upstream. Mm. Everything you want is downstream. Lift your oars. See what we so often, this notion of flow versus forced action. I had a client, uh, I've had, actually had a few in this industry who uh, was a professional gambler and on TV and so forth. And uh, I remember this particular person saying to me at one point, Sven, I know when I sit down at a table, I know if I'm in flow or if I'm forcing it. Forcing it because of ego reasons, forcing it because I'm bored, forcing it for whatever reason. I know, and it never ends well. And so what it means is, to whether it's gambling or whether it's uh, running a business or a, a music career or being a top level academic, it means not forcing action. And when we're forcing action, it's usually because there's a should in there somewhere. Yeah. And a should is never causa sui. It's never from the self. It's always from an external source that we're answering to some other source, which is why this soul work of going inside. When I work with clients, I'm reaching down their throat and pulling out all their fears, 
their pains, and the bullshit beliefs they've been taught about themselves. Because those are the external voices corrupting their own communication with their own soul. And flow then is where you've pulled all that shit out. And now you're in direct communication with your own self and you're operating from that source and you're not forcing action. And very often flow is when we're doing less or doing nothing. Now that's a fuck, that's some trippy shit. Oh yeah. Most people like, I got to stay busy I gotta, or entrepreneurs that I work with or people who run companies and so forth. It's like, I got to do more. I got to do more. And as we age, we realize shit. It's when I'm doing less that more shit happens or in the language of faith, we have to give God room to fucking work. Yeah. Give him room to work. And it's very often when we let go of a process and why is letting go such a part of the uh, cultural mantra? And why is it part of, you know, some of the world religions and uh, re- venerated world religions is because we have to give God room to work or uh, we have to allow things to congeal and take root and so forth. So it's, if you're, if you're feverish, if you live in a state of fever, if you live in a state of constant action, you're not in flow. There are, yes, there are times when I'm going hundred miles an hour with my hair on fire, but very often when I'm pursuing what I love, yes, my overall life is hundred miles an hour with hair on fire. But part of that is that I'm just back into a place of looking at my own shit, meditating, taking time alone, which is big in my work. I have to do it. Yeah. Um, my own exercising where I'm not doing something directly related to the end goal, but I'm doing other things on the infrastructure on the backside end, or I'm literally just relaxing, just resting. When I was an NCAA uh, strength coach, uh, my athletes, I'd have athletes all the time, whether they're pro or Olympian or whatever, when you're dealing at those levels, that the problem is never undertraining, it's always overtraining. And, and so I was the strength guy. I wasn't the conditioning guy. I was the strength and mental toughness uh, head coach. And I would say, they would come to me, coach, I'm plateauing. Well, you really only need four things for, uh, to grow muscle. One, the workout itself, but then you need water, protein, and rest. Yeah. And I guarantee they're getting enough water. I guarantee they're getting, they tend to over on those, but they're, they're not getting enough rest. They're overtraining. Well, that goes antithetical to the intense mind or the mind that really wants something. I really want to become a, a stage actor on Broadway. I really want to be a professor at Yale. I really want to have a business that's pulling in $80 million a year, like my girlfriend's company did that she started. And I really want it. So I'm going to do more and more and more and more and more. And that's not the answer. Very often it's to do less. It's to hands off. It's to let it go, trusting that things are happening, giving yourself in the words of athletes or in the words of when I was coaching to give yourself rest. And it's not just sleep, it's rest. It's to disengage. It's just important because when we overtrain, that's when injuries happen and we plateau, et cetera, et cetera. So flow is ultimately about tuning into your own voice, but it requires getting all the crud out first and then trusting. And this is really what it boils down to. Acting only when it's inspired action versus action or forced action, inspired action. That means trusting, trusting that when, that when it's time to act, the inspiration will come. That's why I don't just write up, bang out a whole bunch of books or even my TikToks. I, I do them when I'm inspired to do them, when, I, when it just feels right. And then I do it. Does that make, does that help? 100%, 100%. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take a little bit of a turn here and go to best or best and worst preaching experiences or counseling experiences and you don't have to say any names if you don't want to but just any like one of each anything just really that comes to mind and 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 you know epitomizes each side well um i i can remember i was in a suburban parish and I got up and it was fun. Uh, and this is just a tiny little one where I got sure. up and I said, then I said, to hell with you. 
to hell with you. I was saying it at the people and I was like pointing to them and shit. And then I said, and those were the words of Jeremiah when he said he didn't want to da da da. I got to swear from the pulpit. Anytime I can swear from the pulpit, I'm a happy guy. <laughs> um, worst preaching experience was the first time I preached at this church in Ohio. Um, there were three different services, or excuse me, two different services in the main sanctuary. And I was preaching. They had services in other parts for younger audiences and shit. But the senior pastor wanted me to go on display for basically the, the main folks and uh, big audiences and so forth, congregations. And I uh, took the, um, the pericopes, the readings for the day. And I don't write out my sermons ever. And so I just lay in bed and I meditate and I meditate and I meditate and not meditate like ohm, but just I'm running it all through my head and piecing right. it together. And what are my main points? And da, 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 da. And so I get up at the first service and, you know, I do a whole sermon on that pericope from my brain. And I'm not behind the pulpit. I'm out among the people and, and so on and so forth. Comes the second service, same choir in the choir loft. All right. And he's there, but a whole new, you know, congregation. And I do a completely different one. And that one, I started with the scene from uh, Dances with Wolves when he first breaks through and being able to talk to Kicking Bird and the woman is there translating and all that. And I open with that and I do a totally different sermon, all from no notes, all out of my brain, engage with the audience and so forth. And uh, I go over and I sit down. Senior pastor says to me, yeah, there wasn't enough sin in there, Sven. And I'm like, you fucking cocksucker. I just preached two motherfucking different sermons all from scratch to entertain your motherfucking choir or anybody else who wanted a different fucking message. And the first thing out of your fucking mouth is a criticism. Fuck you, man. And I love the guy. I love the guy, but it's really, that wasn't enough. Really? Okay. I should, I should cover every single biblical point in every single fucking sermon. Fuck off. And uh, anyway, but I love the guy. I loved him. I love that guy, but it's just like, Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, in a counseling setting, many times, the hardest part in any counseling setting is when someone basically says, yeah, it's not resonating with me. I don't want to do it. I had one guy, uh, we were at my home office and we were sitting out on my porch and he had come to me a few times, very successful businessman. And uh, he had said, you know, about uh, three, two or three sessions in, he says, listen, Sven, I got about three sessions. in." he said, Sven, I've now counseled with you for 11 hours. Okay. Because my sessions are long. They're like first sessions between three and six hours. Each follow-up session is between two and four hours. Anyway, he said, I've counseled now with you 11 hours, Sven, and you really haven't healed me. And, uh, you know, I love you. You're a great guy. No disrespect, but you really haven't, you know, I don't feel like we've made any progress or like you've really healed me. And I said, that's legit. That's totally honest. I appreciate your honesty. Um, in fairness, I will say this, we've done 11 hours together and you've never opened up. You're terrified. You're terrified of opening up about your brother dying and about your father dying. He said, what do you mean opening up? I said, allowing those real feelings come out and grieving it and talking about it. He says, Sven, come on, please. When my brother died, when I was 28, I was ripped wide open that night and I cried through the night. And then when I woke, woke up in the morning, you know, I was ready to go. I got it out of my system. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I, I realized this guy had no intention of touching his shit. You don't, you don't grieve anything overnight. Even you lose your girlfriend that you've been dating two months. You really, you know, like it's going to take you more than one night. You lose your brother and you're 28 years old. That's about four fucking years of grieving at least. Yeah. All right. And so yeah. it's just that he didn't want to touch his pain. And, and, and instead he chose to medicate himself with booze, with food and so forth. And so for me, I got no disrespect for that guy. I mean, I got a good laugh out of it, but ultimately the, the real uh, frustration for me, the disappointment is when someone doesn't want to touch their shit because back to what I said earlier, 
That would be a fate worse than death. That if, if I allowed myself to open that vault where all my real feelings are, it would overwhelm me and I wouldn't live through it. And in his case, he used the excuse, well, I don't think it'll do any good. I don't, and so that, that, what that really indicates is they're terrified of looking at all the shit from their past. But as my favorite author, uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, wrote, um, the cave you most fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Mm. And he was most afraid of all the pain of his life and all the messages and all the, the grief and so forth. But that's the very liberation, the freedom, the happiness that he's been seeking, that he keeps going in all these directions looking for a quick fix because he doesn't want to address the real shit. So that, that and so when that happens, it, it makes me sad because I do this shit for love. I, and most people don't know that I spend more time doing free shit then my page at people say, oh, you get your hourly rate is ridiculous. I said, well, first of all, try living in the New York City tri-state area. <laughs> then tell me that. But more importantly, more importantly, it's just like you don't know how much work I do with the homeless and with veterans and, yeah. and just online answering people's shit. And I don't do that because I get anything out of it. That all the free shit, I do it because I a I love doing my work. Yeah. I I I I love doing my work, but also I just I think of myself more as a pastor than a, even though I'm not talking God. Uh, I think of myself more as a pastor in that mentality of, of being a servant than, gee, this is my fucking profession. And so, uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I give a lot and it, it breaks my heart when people don't want to do the work because I know the ship isn't going to magically heal itself. Their pain is going to get worse and it makes me sad for them. So I think it's great that you have on your website, the, um, which is badasscounseling.com, Correct. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, a, a process for admission, so to speak, or a process to <laughs> write an essay, answer the questionnaire, because, you know, people need to be ready to, to get to work and, and for them to really get the value out of their, their investment. I think it's fantastic that you have that. I, I think more people should, should implement those types of, I hate to say safeguards, but you know, it, they'll, they'll probably get, prepped before the the work anyway by doing that it's going to start bringing right. things up to the surface right, right. I, I require every client to it's actually an autobiography and okay. i give only the loosest of guidelines and i used to allow however long they want it to be but now i cap it at 10 hours a week just because i can't or excuse me 10 pages just because i can't uh, <laughs> read more than that it gets to be too much but i require that in part so that we can hit the ground running the second they get into my office or the second we get on the zoom call that i already know their whole life story and for many of them, it's the first time they've ever told their life story from their own perspective wow. and, or that they've told it at all. And it's very illuminating uh, oftentimes, or, and it's scary for a lot of them to actually face their shit. And, uh, but what it does also is I, I spend between, you know, depending on the length between two and four hours reading that. And I don't charge for that. So what it is on my part is you're already getting about a thousand dollars worth of work out of me. Um, and so it's a good faith show on my part that I'm not just here to fuck you. All right. Yeah. I'm here because there's work to do. And I want, and for me personally, I tell all my clients, one of my goals is to get you off my tit as quickly as possible <laughs> where, and, and, and where you're able to stand on your own. Why? I'm not here to milk you. I'm here because you don't want results two years from now. You want results now. And one of the most radical phrases that I ran across, and I still don't remember who did it. I'm inclined to think it was somebody like Carl Jung, because he was also a, a preacher's kid, as well as one of the fathers of psychology. And again, I know nothing about psychology, but I, I'll steal from anywhere if I find great uh, information. And he said, transformation can be immediate if you go deep enough. 
And part of the problem with so much counseling, so much therapy is they're not going deep enough. And you can accelerate that process so that my average client will last between three and six months. That's it. And they're at a point where they're on their feet and they finally feel emboldened. They finally feel a sense of self. They've done the deep fucking work. That's why I don't do one hour every week ad infinitum. Um, and the autobiography accelerates that process because normally you spend six to eight sessions just getting to fucking know the person. They come in my office. I've already got the questions and I'm already loaded up or they, I've got their autobiography and I'm already loaded up with all the questions that becomes a jumping off point. We can move very, very quickly and go very, very deeply um, in doing it. So yeah, um, that's been, I don't even know why the hell I started doing it. I don't even remember when I started doing it. I've just always been doing it. And there are some people because of privacy issues and because I do deal with some big name people who choose not to do it and that's fine. Then we just come in as a normal session, but it yeah. that just takes more fucking time. But, uh, yeah, um, uh, it works. It works. And I honestly, I don't know why more people don't do it either. Uh, other than gee, they don't want to give their giveaway, you know, time, free time, maybe that's it. Or hell, why not even just charge, you know, whatever amount for it. But the bottom line is it would just accelerate the process, but I don't know. I don't care. Other people have other methods that work. This one works for me and we can move very, very quickly and go very, very deeply and I can get them off my tit. And, and for me, most people say, well, that, isn't that a stupid business model? For me, it's just the opposite. It's the best business model I can think of because yes, I'm not keeping them needy of me for years and years at one hour a week. And one hour is usually 50 minutes or 45 minutes. But for me, who are they most likely to tell their friends about when their friends are going through a problem or their brother? Holy shit. I was seeing this guy, Sven, and he just, we solved shit right away. And he moves so fast. And yeah, he swears a lot. And yeah, he's ugly and looks like he eats small children for lunch. But if you can get past that, he actually gets fucking results and he gets them quickly. I'll take that kind of fucking recommendation for my business. And so from a business point, it just makes sense too. So I love it. I love it. As we, as we kind of start to, you know, wrap up here. Yep. Um, another really interesting point that I, I saw in one of your videos, which is, is a, is a direct spinoff from Steve Jobs. Uh, foolishness correlated with success. Absolutely. Uh, I love this. I'm diving deep into it now as, as I've kind of looked over my life and patterns in my life and where, where I, where I'm aspiring to go and to manifest and what to whatever, and seeing that time and time again, you know, am I being foolish enough in this? Did I push the envelope enough? Whatever. But yeah, just, just, just opening the floor to, to expand on that for you on, on, it's just, it's a fantastic subject. Yeah. And, and you know what, this, I, that's so great that you brought that up. That speech by Steve Jobs at Stanford University in 2007, whatever it was, and guy who'd never gone to college and then has all that success. And he talks about it at the end you know, that he has a few stories. And then at the end, that story about this notion of stay foolish, stay, stay hungry, hungry, stay foolish. Yeah. Stay, yep. Yeah. That's it. Stay hungry, stay foolish. And it really, that for me, he was echoing really what I had been taught as a kid. And that is I had been given liberty by my parents at a very young age. One of the messages I got at school is Sven, you're different. Be normal, implicit, different is bad. Normal is good. From most of my teachers and administrators, that was the message I got. The message I got at home, however, was, Sven, you're different, and God bless you, run with it. Yeah. And, and implicit in that, from a pastor and a pastor's wife who ended up teaching at the graduate level at the largest seminary, Lutheran seminary in the world, and was well-respected in her field by the time she's in her 60s. So very strong thinkers, but free spirits themselves. And they said, Sven, we can't tell you what God is speaking to you. 
how the, how the fuck can we know what God is speaking to you? How can I tell you what your passion is? You have to become whatever God made you to be. And that's much more biblical. You know, John the Baptist was a fucking wingnut. I mean, they're all, it's a whole amalgam of wingnuts. The eating, whole fucking locusts, right? Out in the wilderness or whatever. Wild, yeah. Yes. And, and that's just, and he was tame compared to others. And so this notion of, well, if we really believe that God speaks a different message to Peter than he does to Paul versus Andrew versus Stephen. You know, I, I mean, it's if you really believe that, you know, each of us is different, then we have to allow room for that child to express his difference and not just express his or her difference within the, the parameters of what's safe for me, the parent. I had a client just this morning who growing up, he was told by his parents, listen, you have to be either in law, in medicine or in finance, one of those three. But within those three, you can do whatever you want. And it's just like, in other words, you have to stay within parameters that I feel comfortable with or that assuage my ego or that make me look good and big to everyone else. And so bringing it back around that the Steve Jobs notion of staying foolish, I was set up for it as a kid that it's okay to be foolish and, and failure was never criticized. You know, I took a ribbing from my brothers and so on and so forth, um, but it was never put down. I was just this oddball. And eventually in school, they just got used to it. Sven's just a, he's just a wingnut. And so that set me up. And in part, because I was in drama, and, but also in sports, but also in orchestra and also sang in the choir and all these things. It's just like, and in my school, it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people who were just, you know, multi-talented or were just, it had interests. And so that was set up that it's okay to be foolish. And that, what that does, it puts the ego aside. I mean, think about careers like acting. Think about careers like um, research. Do you have the courage to, to go after the hypotheses you really believe in? Or in music, are you singing who you really are? Or is this, is this somehow your ego or you're trying to be like someone? Um, or in business, are you really pursuing the business that you want to pursue? I mean, think about it. Think about it. I'm a, I'm a carnivore. Okay. My girlfriend's basically a crustatarian, basically a vegetarian, but she allows herself to eat shellfish. Okay. And 10 years ago, I even put on my dating profile, I moved across the country for her. I even put on my dating profile. I do not date vegetarian. And if you're a vegan, go away. You guys are so fucking don't, self-righteous. Don't message me. Right. And then on top of it, I said, and if you're in the fashion industry, I'm so not interested. You know, <laughs> I end up getting a girlfriend who's a crustatarian with a company in New York City in the garment industry. And I love her to death. And we've been together eight years. Right. Um, but the point is, uh, the point is just 10 years ago, just 10, 12 years ago, uh, you know, it was still, we were still a mediating culture and there was a tiny fraction that ate fake meat or whatever. Now that stocks, those stocks, those companies are growing in leaps and bounds because some people had the courage to say, well, I believe I don't want to hurt animals. Can we create food alternatives? Or I want to do what's best for the environment. And it wasn't popular and they created it. So whatever your vision is, you have to have the liberty to get rid of the fears of the known of what people will say and so on and so forth. So yeah, that willingness to look foolish once you can pass through that, and once you can realize that, you know, Babe Ruth was not just a home run king, he was the strikeout king. Yeah. Willie Stargell, Reggie Jackson, yep. they were strikeout kings as much. You got to be willing to step up to the plate and strike out. And if you're not, you're never going to achieve your greatness because you're going to be afraid to swing. You know, you're going to be able to you just uh, uh, do what you feel inspired to do. So I applaud you and your work because I need the artists. I need the actors. I need the musicians. I need the people doing cutting edge shit in terms of, you know, podcasting, putting out new messages. I need that. Why? Because their inspiration, not just their ideas, not just their music, but their courage. 
to heed their own voice and put out there what they believe in, whether it's avant-garde or mainstream or whatever it is, people who have the courage to be inspired, inspire me. I get energy from people like you who have the courage to follow their own voice, even if they feel they're looking stupid and what are people going to say? Because the creatives inspire me. So I need people like you. And that's, so yeah, I'm a big believer in the willingness to look foolish. Well, it's, it's symbiotic, my friend. I really, you know, I've just been so, so fucking blessed by your presence and your, the online presence and, and, you know, finding stumbling upon you on TikTok and just, um, it's symbiotic. I really appreciate it. Very gracious of you. Thank you. And, and you know, wrapping up here, actually, I do. Let me let me go back for a second. You said something that was really interesting regarding the, you know, from the musician standpoint, the acting standpoint. One of the big things for me that I've had to really click back and dial back is, and I, you're inspired. Your your influences pushing. Okay, here's the bar. Stevie Ray Vaughan plays like this. Hendrix plays like this. Incredible. Mm -hmm. And you aspire to be like them for so many years. And, and because it, that's where the bar is set, but it gets to a point where you realize I'm never going to be Stevie Ray Vaughan. Mm. It's a scary place to be because mm. then at the, at the same time, all of your influences and, you know, people ask me in interviews, you know, who, who influenced you and so on and so forth. And I'll say there's so many, I can't even name how many there are. It's mm. got to be in the hundreds that, that have mm. affected me to a certain degree, whether it's Metallica, you know, and then you look at it from the music production standpoint, the writing, the, mm. the tones, the, I, I mean, everything, the live show, uh, your thoughts on, I don't even know why I'm asking this question, but your thoughts on finding the, the difference and the split point between aspiring to be like the greats, mm -hmm. but also f listening to your voice yeah, paradoxically no, at the same time. Like, how? No, that's great. That's what are great. your thoughts? Uh, no, I love that because when I am writing or even leading up to writing a book, I'm not reading anything. Yeah. I'm not reading anybody else. And it's, it's that I'm constantly weeding out any voices of, I need to sound more like, you know, in your case, Stevie Ray Vaughan, or I need to sound more like Prince, or I need to whatever, and pulling those voices out. Because again, it gets back to communication with my own soul. What is my soul saying? Well, I'm going to do a fifth to a third here versus a, a fifth to a first, or, you know, whatever the hell it is. And it's the courage to do that. And, but it's constantly weeding out those shoulds. And so it's like, you, you, you know, that you got to practice something so long, so long, so long, so long. And then you eventually throw out the rules. And yes, those, they're still influencing you. But really what you're doing is, is finding your own voice and having the courage to listen to your own inner voice. And, and what's driving it, if you're not doing it, is ultimately fear. Fear that if I'm not doing more of this, fear if I'm not tweaking it this way or, or producing it this way, it's not going to be right versus fuck all that shit. And what it gets down to is, am I willing to fail? Because if you're not willing to fail, you're not going to listen to your own fucking voice. You're going to take whatever is safe. And, and so, you know, I have regrets in some of my work in my very first book, Spiritual But Not Religious, seminal work. I didn't touch the issue of gay rights, even though it was a hot issue for me 
And, and I really wanted, because I'd grown up around gay people and it was just like, they're my brothers and sisters, just like anybody else. So it was a non-thing for me back in the nineties or back in the eighties when I first started standing up about this shit. It was like, no, 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 no. And, and my thinking at the time was, well, I don't want my work on reforming the church to get sidetracked by this. And I wish I'd put that in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are times when I've short-circuited my own voice and later I was like, I regret it. But in the way, you know, I, cho- I made my decision and you live with it. But yeah, it really gets down to you have to, and this is what we're talking about earlier. You have to have the courage to tune out the other voices. You have to have the courage in the end to tune out Stevie Ray Vaughan or Neil Part or whatever your instrument is to tune out or whatever your passion is to tune out how Steve Jobs would do it if I want to start a tech company or to tune out whatever. Yes, I've looked at it all, but in the end, and it's the same way when, it, when a kid at 20 years old or 22 years old, yes, I've listened to mom's wisdom. Yes, I've listened to dad's wisdom. Yes, I've listened to a culture saying, and I've ingested it. And then it's like, bleh, now I'm going to blurt it out and I'm just going to be me. And it's a willingness to disappoint all of them. It's a willingness to be thought a fool. It's a willingness to endure their criticisms. And so it's, it's less about the mechanics of hearing your own voice. Because again, I don't think people don't know what they really want to do or what they, I think more often than not, and there may be some of that, but if you scratch the surface a bit, they know what they want. They know what their uh, expression is or the direction they really want to go. But what's confounding the process, making them think they want this other thing. It's not that other thing. It's just the fear that they have regarding how this will be received, what they really want to be doing. And it's that, again, it gets back to ego, fear of criticism. And it's just like, at what point, who the, the, as I wrote my book, every morning when you wake up, uh, life is whispering two questions in your ear before you get up or right as you're getting up, itching your butt, going in to go to the bathroom. And it's simply this, who the fuck are you really? And you have the courage to be who the fuck you really are because anything other than that is a watered down version of your most authentic self. Anything other than that is a fuck you to God because God created you with that chip inside. And your job is just to read that chip. And the way you read that chip, the way you read that chip is simply by energy. I, and, and, and I'll tell you what I mean. Very briefly, in the creation story of Genesis, God forms the clay, but it doesn't have life. What gives it life? He breathes into its nostrils. He breathes the breath of God into his nostrils and it animates and gives him energy. What does Jesus do in the upper room after his resurrection? And he's uh, come back and he's talking to his disciples and then he breathes on them. And I began to think, what is it that breathes life into me? That's the voice of God. What is it that literally gives me energy? When someone has energy, we talk about them as inspired, Latin, spirit, in. We talk about them as enthusiastic, Greek, theos, and God inside. Um, and, uh, and so these things, this notion of having energy. So all you got to learn to do ultimately, whether you're a believer in God and you want to follow God's call for your life, or whether you're a non-believer and just want to be in tune to your own soul, what gives you energy? What breathes life into you? It's not, what do I like? What do I want? Those are the wrong questions. Those are head questions. Those are good. They can help. But ultimately, does this path breathe life into it? Does it give me energy? Does it energize me? Or does it feed me, bleed me, bore me, numb me? Do I have to conjure up energy just to go do it? It's not you. That's somebody else's path. Your path, what you were written on your chip, what you were put on this earth to do is to read your own fucking energy and have the courage to do it because anything else is a big fuck off to God. Jeez. It's just so good. And it, and it also, it also I, I kept hearing lack of trust with yes. yourself. Yes. All of that, st- and this is kind of work that I've been doing with myself is you, and, and it also not good enough. Fear of yeah. not being good enough. Your voice not measuring up to 
one of the greats. Or if I'm that's not, right. that's one thing that I've found over the years is, sure, you can be inspired for years by doing something, but then mm-hmm. it gets to a place of, oh, I'm actually, I, I've, I've had this where I, I'm actually afraid to solo with what I'm hearing in my head because I'm just regurgitating what everybody else has done. Mm. because it's worked or because mm. it they got right. applause for it right so then and it's crazy because as i've kind of gone down this journey and really and i've realized that the great how the greats got there is they've just been listening to that inner voice mm-hmm. because when they get hooting and hollering for doing this one thing in a solo yep what i've realized is that when i'm on stage doing this when i'm listening to that inner voice there's an automatic pinging in response from the audience sure. where they'll, they'll just start going crazy. And yeah. I'm like, I don't even know why they're going crazy. I just played like two notes. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's really, it's, it's great, but yeah. But it requires it, but to that point of authenticity, one of my neighbors here, she produces uh, Broadway shows and they're in the process of developing uh, a, a show. And it's about sister Rosetta Tharp in guitar history uh, uh, Elvis and all of the great men track back to her as the greatest that she revolutionized rock and roll and she was a preacher she was working wow. in the church and wow. that style of rock and roll guitar didn't exist you look up sister Rosetta Tharp I will be. and yeah and so her style didn't exist she created it and she became the underpinning that Lennon McCartney Elvis uh, you know, and the great ones of that area that then became the great ones, you know, uh, and Jimmy Page and all those all track back. Many of them track back to her even before the ones we always hear about. Robert and Johnson, so, or whoever. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And so the point is, and it, you know, it goes back to a woman, which is just the beautiful irony yeah. of rock and roll. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. Um, but ultimately, it's someone having the courage to be original. And, and, and it's that willingness to fail. It's the willingness to step up to the plate and strike out. And I, like I said, I wrote six books. Nobody read my fucking books. I had to be willing to fail. And it's, I was doing it for me. I wanted my voice to be out there. And even if it's forever forgotten, I don't care. I need to say it. I need to, I mean, that great quote, you know, we're all fucking actors on the stage of life and, you know, on the stage for our little time. And are you going to play your fucking role? Because you were given a role. What is your fucking voice? Nobody cares if you sound like Stevie Ray Vaughan. What we care about is what's your voice? Give me something new. Give me your originality. Feed me, electrify me with your originality. Whatever sound it might be, whatever volume it might be, whatever texture and timber it might be, give me what is inside of you. That's what we are all longing for in life. That sense of authenticity. I was being interviewed by CNBC. They wanted to make a show out of me. And they were, in fact, the ninth. That was the ninth. That was actually the seventh time. There have been nine where somebody was trying to make a show out of me and CNBC brought me in for interviews. And I was uh, dealing with a top guy and and his uh, uh, right hand woman there. And one of the things they said after, you know, they'd interviewed me and so on and so forth. One of the people in the room said, you know, the biggest thing that we look for in building a TV show around someone is authenticity. And I don't think it can be questioned, Sven, that for all the other things that might be criticized about you, you are, in fact, authentic. And that's what people are looking for, that authenticity, that that's what we resonate with. And, and here's the thing. I know nothing about theater, but I do know this. One of the great quotes from theater is the mark of good theater is seeing yourself on stage, Ooh. seeing something <laughs> that you have been, are or aspire to be. 
And, and remember back to that William James quote, that which is most personal is most universal. So the more I'm showing my authentic, my true originality, the more it resonates in someone else that, yeah, I feel that way. Or yeah, I used to be that way too. And that pulls me into the story. But if I'm not willing to be authentic, if I'm not willing to be original, I'm not going down to that which is most personal. And therefore, the, the audience isn't going to resonate with me right? It requires the courage to look foolish, to take those risks. Actors are always talking about taking risks. Well, yeah, it's you trusting your own inner voice. And musicians are always talking about, you know, all the influence and weeding that out. I had friends who are pilots and, you know, in, in war and in civilian life, they talk about checklists, 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 pre-flight, in-flight, post-flight, pre-landing, da, 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 da. but the great ones are doing it so long that they're always going through their checklists. But in the, in the end, that, that large instrument with four engines and so forth is an extension of that pilot. That's why Sullenberger could land that fucking plane in the Hudson river without it sinking and getting everybody out because it was an extension of him. He had been doing it his whole life. They don't, you know, sure they can teach how to do a water landing, but in the end, till you get there, you can't train for that shit. Right. right? But you're following your inner voice and your own instincts that you've honed over the years. So now you throw out Prince, you throw out fucking Stevie Ray Vaughan, you throw out Hendrix, you throw out Terry Kath of Chicago, whom Jimi Hendrix called the Better greatest than guitar player in the universe. Yeah. Terry so Kath, baby. Out. Oh, man. The fact that you brought him up. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge. Yeah. Oh, Chicago pre Terry Kath's Russian roulette death. Pre Terry yeah. Kath's death was the best. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. anyway, uh, I've gone on too long. But yeah, that courage <laughs> to be authentic. That courage to be authentic. All right. So as as I say for the third time, wrapping up, I want to be sensitive to your time. One one last one last bullet sure. point before we wrap it up. Sure. Churchianity. It's a word that's been coined. It's been thrown around in the last 10, 15 years, maybe more, maybe longer. Um, mm-hmm. Your thoughts coming out of the pandemic. A lot is being exposed here. A lot of the bullshit just coming out. All right. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm so happy about it. All the placating, all the all the dogma, all the I mean, all the ridiculousness that that it's like, why are we here? Right. Why are people getting together for that? This is this is ridiculous. Right. So your thoughts on to where the church is going, where the body of Christ is going, per se, for those that don't believe in it, you can do that spin, whatever. But, you know, just that that place of people are hungry. People yes. are hungry for truth. Yes. Yes. And and I feel like this this message has just really gone down a rabbit hole for a long time. Yeah. And, and this is what I was writing about 30 years ago when I started writing spiritual but not religious, that the writing was on the wall. And we saw it in the mainline denominations first, the Episcopals, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and then down into the Methodists. And so and now it's down into the Baptists and the Catholics are all feeling it that this mass exit out of religion because something's not working. And as I talk about in the book, which sadly is not on a print, but as I talk about, there are many reasons for that. But ultimately, what drives people to come together nonetheless, uh, despite all the flaws in the church and in church leadership and in the theology and so forth, is ultimately that longing for communal spirituality, that I can have spirituality in my own personal life, and I do, and you do, and so forth, and we all have that. But there's something about coming together, that notion that religion at its best is shared spirituality, shared conversation with God or whatever our, it is that we worship. And, and, but it's been corrupted by so many different factors. And so, hence, so many people leaving. And yet the longing, the longing to share it with others and also to, ha- to be led you know, to have someone who maybe is, uh, as I call it with regard to my TikToks and my books, I'm just one beggar 
showing another beggar where to find food. To me, that, that is, that is what it means to lead when it comes to spirituality. It's like, but we, we corrupt it with so much else and the growth and the money and the, and uh, the, whatever the self-aggrandizement and so forth. And I'm not going to lie. I, I have some ego myself. So they obviously, uh, but the bottom line is, is that people are searching and people are hungry. And so we're seeing the rise over the last 20, 30 years of let's say yoga in a way, yoga for many people is shared spirituality. We're coming together. We're releasing the pains of life. We're communing before and after, and we're having a bodily experience for many people. It's the gym for many people. It's uh, anything that brings us together where we're being somewhat vulnerable, we're opening up to others, that there's immense pleasure in that. But yes, part of where we are at in our society is there is this longing um, to have our spirituality spoken to, spoken about, uh, that we can begin to discuss this notion of self and that we can be furthered along and that we can share that path with other people. Um, and as I've been saying for 30 years, that uh, over the, there are still plenty of churches out there doing good things and God bless them. And I applaud them and so forth. But there are people who aren't sure what they believe and, and who are struggling with faith, who maybe wouldn't feel comfortable in a church. And, and so there are so many people with so many different spiritual issues and the longing in our culture and uh, perhaps globally, but I'll speak specifically to America because is where I live. Uh, there is a longing to have their spiritual needs met, to have something speak to the voice of their soul to feel like they're moving, to have the epiphanies, all the shit that church is supposed to be. And now to have those experiences without some of the crap that may distance them from the church. Um, so the impulse, the human impulse to have their spiritual life spoken to and connecting with others at the spiritual level is extraordinarily important. I don't think that'll ever go away. It's part of being human. And so what we seek is people who have the courage to speak up and speak their authentic voice and uh, that other people can ping off of and find the food that that uh, beggar is leading them to. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I love it. The, the beggar leading to the, you know, the beggar telling the other per beggar of uh, where the food's food. at. Yeah, I've yeah. never, never really heard of that before. Very Same. profound, very profound. So I've got, I've got one last thing here that, that I do. I call it the shootout section where I just say a word that's industry related or not industry related related to the guest I, sure. i'm so used to having you know musicians on the that's show right. so it's like yeah. <laughs> uh that's related to the guest and and you just fire a word back that is um sure first word that comes to mind it's just kind of Fair a fun word game Fair enough. happiness uh me wow that's good counseling fun life uh deathly I like it. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that was. That's the new book. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in there. Uh, God. Fun. Spirit. Deep. TikTok. Massive. Bible. Deep. Truth. Light. Faith heavy pizza yummy oh so good <laughs> got the rhyme in there at the end and everything at, at did i oh i didn't even know that yeah heavy yummy oh hey there you go I boom who knew so the the last question that i have that i ask everybody at the end is if you could go back in time to your 15 year old self knowing what you know now what would you tell him be even ballsier and I was ballsy, but be even ballsier. Or, and the corollary would be, fuck them. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. How about you, Jason? What would you tell your 15 year old self? You got to keep going. Like you got to keep going. I like it. Easy to get bogged down. Easy to lose the, lose the path. Yeah. You got to keep going. Hmm. And, uh, that's even coming from a place of, I still have to keep going. Right. So, yeah. you know, right. it, I'm just now getting into that place of, it's really not about the destination. It's about the journey. And I mean, people will throw that down your throat time and time right. and time right. again. But again, until, right. until you feel that visceral experience of, okay, this is not working. Yep. This, this, this is not sustainable. Right. The, the, the admiration, the awards, the, what, it's not right. Then what? Then so, what? yeah, I just say, you know, keep going. I love it. Good answer. Love yeah. it. So for those that are listening, driving in the gym, whatever, uh, where can folks find you the handles sure. for social and then, you know, anything coming up soon. Sure. Sure. Uh, obviously, uh, as we've already mentioned, uh, badass counseling on TikTok. Uh, I'd love to have you come. We've got a lot of people weighing in. I try to comment when I can, and so there's a bit of a conversation there. But uh, badass counseling on TikTok and on same on Instagram and on YouTube. Um, and Instagram uh, sometimes, if, if for some reason you got something, I let people reach out to me through direct message from Instagram. I don't get to everyone. I have hundreds every single week, but if you have something that's eating at you or just want to throw a question out uh, at me, whatever, feel free to do it through Instagram or my website, which is badasscounseling.com. Also there are my books. There's a hole in my love cup, which has become an, an Amazon bestseller. Um, and the rest of my books uh, also, uh, I put up all podcasts I've ever done there. Um, and also I have uh, do-it-yourself video courses uh, to take you through the steps of healing and beginning to find your authentic voice and different packages there. Um, and I think that's everything. Awesome. I can't thank you enough. This has been- You were great. So uh, like it's, it's all I'm, I'm speech again, speechless still from whatever you said earlier. I have to, I have to, you know, rewatch this when I'm editing it. I appreciate it. Thank you. I, I really no, thank you for it. the opportunity, Jason. This is very gracious of you to have me on your show. I really appreciate it. This was fun. It, it really was. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, you guys have been watching and listening to the Jason Amico show. Um, check out the description box below for, Sven's information and follow him there. Definitely. If you're not on TikTok, make an account just to follow this guy because <laughs> his account alone is, is worth, you know, making a, uh, a, a subscription or account for. So we will see you all on the next episode and peace. Peace. <laughs>